Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, I don't know if you guys caught this in the news this last week, but uh, uh, Washington, D.C., there's always something going on that gets people's attention, right? Well, it's reaffirmed. Okay, good. We, uh, we had a visitor uh, drop into the Capitol lawn this week on Wednesday. A, uh, yeah, a postman from Florida decided to fly a one-man helicopter in to uh, the Capitol. And, and he, was this, uh, he was bringing with his helicopter, he's a mailman, 535 letters uh, addressed to each member of Congress, uh, representative and, and senator, uh, with a statement that, that he had uh, composed about his concern about the influence of money in politics. And I thought, that man, this is really a, an interesting sort of starting point because uh, what he did there, whatever you think about it, was uh, uh, another in a long line of, of big public statements. Now, I'm not sure that what he did had any other impact or will have any other impact than the fact that he shut down the Capitol for most of a day. And he's now wearing a 24-hour monitoring leg bracelet. And he's under house arrest, which I'm not sure that he calculated that into his decision to do this. But uh, he was concerned. Uh, and I think, you know, you have to respect that and what he was willing to do to show that concern and hopefully to make some impact on uh, the members of Congress, our elected uh, representatives of Congress. But throughout history, uh, I, I can just think recently in my lifetime, there's, there's just been a whole range of big public statements that people have made. Uh, some of them are kind of silly. Tom Cruise got on the couch and <laughs> jumped up and down about how, how in love he was with Katie Holmes. Uh, actually, this morning, I, I, I just looked at that on, on uh, YouTube just to bask in the, the weirdness of that moment. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen it. I'm not encouraging you to go see it, but I thought I'm going to mention this today. I, I, I want to remember how weird that really was. It was very weird, very strange. Uh, and in my lifetime, too, in the, in the late 1980s, there was a uh, massive protest in Tiananmen Square in China where students and others were uh, trying to raise the awareness and protest the, the, the political problems in, in their country. And it, it not only uh, got the attention of their own government, it got attention of the whole world. I think it went on for about seven weeks, and it was led by students, largely, by uh, college students in China. And those kinds of big public statements, they, they tend to have elements to them. And what, I, what we call today's talk is the most radical statement that we can make. Now, many of you have already made this statement, uh, Maybe you didn't understand the full implications of it, so we're going to look at that statement today that, that most of us have made here, and maybe some of us haven't made, and we're going to unpack it. Uh, all these public statements have certain things in common. Uh, there's some principle from which they are motivated. There is uh, actually a great personal cost that you make to make a statement that, that is a big, radical statement. Three... Oftentimes, that statement will uh, move other people to action of some kind. Uh, and hopefully not just to put a 24-hour monitoring leg bracelet on you, but something more substantial and important than that. And then fourthly, you will see when th this kind of radical statement that we've made, it has incredible promise to us personally. So when we make these statements, they come from a principle, they're costly, they usually move and influence other people, and they have a, 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 a reward or a benefit to us. And many times when you make these kinds of statements, the benefit isn't always the most important part of it, but it inevitably comes with it. And so you may not be a, the kind of person that, that you would never think of making a big public statement, but you made it when you read the Apostles' Creed. There's a line in the Apostles' Creed which, which was formulated uh, well after the apostolic early era of the church. But it said, I believe in Jesus Christ. And in a sense, what you said in there is Jesus is Lord. That was the earliest confession of 
followers of Jesus that summarized what they believed about God and their faith in God. I mean, that little statement, in fact, in the Greek, there's no is, there's just Jesus Lord, or, or Kyrios, and they, they said it different ways, Jesus. And Kyrios was the Greek word for Lord. Jesus was Jesus. So, Jesus Lord became the profession that you had to make, the public profession you had to make before you'd be baptized and welcomed into the church. And it was, you would think, well, gosh, that just sounds so benign and sort of churchy and non-radical. What on earth could possibly be so important that in the first century and, and for hundreds of years, that became the heart of what people said when they became followers of Jesus. So what we want to do is unpack that today. Because this, understanding this, like I was thinking about this this morning, I'm not sure there's anything that I could teach that would be more important than this that I'm talking about right now. And this, this one idea, when I heard it as a young Christian, absolutely changed Well, when I first heard the gospel, but this was implicit in it. When I got this, it completely changed the direction of my life. And it was never the same afterwards. And so I don't want to overhype this, but the, the reason why Jesus is Lord is so radical is because it is radical. It is dramatic. It is powerful. And it is more powerful than the statement than those students made at Tiananmen Square. It's more powerful than the statement that Doug Hughes made, the, the mailman from Florida. Not to diminish, you know, the concern he had in any way. But what... You say, when you say Jesus is Lord, is profound and amazing and gripping. And there's nothing you'll ever utter that even compares to it. And I, I want you to look with me. In, uh, in Romans chapter 10, if you have a Bible with you, I'm going to just quote it. Uh, but if you have a Bible with you, you can, you can run, turn to Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. And many of you have heard this verse before. In fact, I quoted it Sunday uh, Easter Sunday. Paul wrote this and he said, starting at verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So he, he does what Hebrews tend to do is he says something and then he restates it. And uh, good communicators do that. Uh, I apologize if sometimes if I restate things too often or too frequently. But he said, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So the first thing that that Jesus is Lord is, is this this radical confession. And again, it sounds so churchy and so non-controversial, but when Paul wrote this letter to the Christians in Rome, there were two groups of people who would hear this letter. There were Romans and there were Jews who were Romans. And some of them were Roman citizens because not all Jews were Roman citizens. Uh, some Jews were, some weren't. But Rome was this... It's Rome... In, in the era that the New Testament was written is like the United States today. The United States is the 800-pound gorilla in the middle of the room on the world stage. We live in America, so we don't know how influential we are in good and bad ways. And Rome was the same way, except Rome was even more imperialistic than America is. I mean, Rome just went everywhere to conquer. And... and to hear the word Jesus is Lord was to, to be under, uh, to be gripped by uh, this, the implications of it. And the Romans would have heard this. They would have heard Jesus is Lord, Caesar is Lord. Because out in front of the whole Roman machine was this idea that Caesar was the head of Rome and he ruled over this empire, and everywhere that Rome went, it brought peace. It brought peace. 
Now, it brought peace at the edge of a sword, but it did bring peace. It didn't bring order. And in a chaotic world, there was something good about that. Uh, whatever you think about it, 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 it did bring something that many places lack. Uh, you could debate whether the cost was too high or not, but Pax Romana was a part of the ancient world that many people welcomed. Now, when the Romans came and conquered you, many people just surrendered. Some people fought, and then they were defeated because the Romans were incredibly good at conquering, at, at warfare. But they imposed peace and order, and they, they set up a legal system, which in most cases was, was far advanced to what uh, people typically lived under. They stopped all the, the fighting back and forth, you know, the tribal fighting and, and the, the, the battles among ethnic groups. They just squashed it. And so people would, you know, use the Roman courts uh, such as they were to try to uh, settle their disputes and problems. But to hear the Christians say, Jesus is Lord, the Romans would go, whoa, we've conquered the world. We're the ones that bring peace. Jesus is not Lord. Caesar is Lord. So that would make, that, that, would, that would chap the Romans. They would react to that. And that's what got, that, Jesus got crucified for two reasons. One, because the Jews were threatened by him because he uttered blasphemy when he claimed to be the Christ, the Son of God. They said, you are making yourself equal with God. You get crucified for that. But then, Jesus was also a king, which was a rival of Caesar, so the Romans crucified him for that. So he could have recanted one or the other, but the very heart of his identity was God in the flesh who is king. Radical idea. And the Romans were threatened by that, and the Jews were threatened by it. But here's the thing. People could dismiss it, and they often dismissed it with, unless you, you dialogue with them, because... A crucified king is an oxymoron. A defeated king, a, a criminal is not a king. Kings are noble. Kings are, you know, they have all these attributes. A, a, a crucified king was an oxymoron to the Romans. Because Romans were, if, if Romans were anything, they were winners. Romans won. They overcame, they ruled. The idea that God would reveal himself and then allow himself to be crucified. They couldn't buy it. And to the Jews, the crucifixion was uniquely unpalatable for this reason. In the law, the law said if anyone hung on a tree, like either they hung themselves, which literally was generally the way that they understood it, or they were punished, and when that law was written, crucifixion wasn't even invented, but there was something about it that, that gripped the Jewish mind. That, they, that The law said, if you hang on a tree, you're cursed by God. You're not a winner. You couldn't be God's representative. You couldn't have anything to do with God because that type of death was a signal for everyone to see, an unmistakable signal that God was not for you, that he was judging you. And so a crucified Messiah... A Lord to the Jews was, was insane. But the earliest titles that Jesus was given, in fact, the, the title that Jesus is given in the New Testament, more than all the other titles that Jesus has given, is Lord. So from the very beginning, the Jewish Christians chose this word, curios, which could have the connotation of sir, uh, you know, title of respect. They chose that. Because they saw that Jesus fulfilled that. And to the, to the Jews, that was also, that chapped them because the Jews in Jerusalem and, and all over the world read largely out of the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And so to the Jews, the name of God was so holy and to be respected that many Jews wouldn't even use God's unique name, which we use Yahweh or Jehovah. You've heard that word, right? Some of you have had some of Jehovah's messengers come to your door. Maybe that's how you became familiar with the name. But that name was incredibly important to Jews. And so 
the Jewish scholars who translated the Hebrew into Greek, they had to choose carefully what name in Greek to give God in his most holy name. And over 6,000 times in the Septuagint, the word is translated kurios. So the God of Israel, the maker of everything, their redeemer, their savior, the Christians use the name kurios to recognize Jesus as Lord. So the Jews just go, there's no way. You're going to have to persuade us. Just like the Romans, they needed different kinds of persuading because a defeated savior was no savior. A defeated king was no king. And a cursed Messiah was no Messiah. So the cross became this stumbling block for everybody. How could Jesus be that? And so the cross and the resurrection are these these bookend events that settled it. In the, in, in, uh, at first, it wasn't settled in, in the minds of, early, of Jesus' earliest followers. When he was crucified, they all ran away and lost their faith. And until he was raised from the dead and began to appear to them over and over and over and over again, it began to sink in. Wow, he's not dead. He, was te- he told us this was going to happen. He told us he was going to be crucified, but we didn't believe him. He would be rejected. We didn't want to even think of that. And then, when he was raised from the dead over and, 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 and appeared over and over and over and over, it finally sank in. They weren't expecting that. You know, people will tell you, there's lots of books written around Easter and around Christmas about all the legends about Jesus being God and how the development of the, of, you know, the deity of Jesus developed over hundreds of years, just like the development of the divinity of Buddha. But that's just not, it doesn't hold water. From the very beginning, the followers of Jesus called him Lord. They gave him the title of deity. They worshipped him. They prayed to Jesus. When Stephen was being stoned, in Acts it's recorded. This is just months, maybe only a a year or two after Jesus' death and resurrection. He's being stoned and he looks up and it's recorded by Luke who wrote it on behalf of witnesses to the event. Maybe Paul himself. And he, and he looked up and he said, Lord Jesus, you know, into your hands I commit my spirit. Which was an interesting parallel to when Jesus was on the cross and he speaks to the Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen is praying to Jesus. This is in Acts chapter 7. This is the earliest days of the church. This was not an idea that only emerged after centuries and you know, the, the Roman emperor wanted to have a divine savior, and so he engineered this in some church council. That's not true. They, they worshiped and served and believed in Jesus as Lord from the earliest days of the church. They saw him as God. But here's the, here's the punchline. For the Jews, this cursed thing about the cross, the resurrection did something for them that solved to them an, an an unsolvable dilemma. How could the Messiah be someone who is crucified? He's under the curse of the law. But if you go back in the law, in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 24, and this is just one summary statement of, of, that's repeated often in the law. Cursed is everyone who does not keep all the commandments. So the Jews lived under this burden that, that was proven in their national life that the promise of the covenant of God being with you was dependent on you being faithful to that covenant all the time, 24-7, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, every year of your life, every moment. If you don't keep the covenant in all of its provisions, you're under God's curse. So now they have another dilemma. And what the good news is that that so captured many of their hearts was, and we feel that. Don't you feel that at times? Like, man, sometimes I I get up in the morning and and I want to be a nice person. The other times I get up and I want to be a gnarly person. And I don't even care that I don't want to be a nice person. And that is the human condition. And then there's people who just get up and they just want to be gnarly and they don't care what anybody thinks about it, right? 
They kind of make a career out of being a gnarly person. But the average person has pangs of conscience, and we're gripped by this stuff where we go, I don't want to be like this. And Jesus comes along and says, you feel guilty for that, that's a good thing. But I not only want to deliver you from that guilt, I want to do something inside you that I want to put a new impulse in you that comes from me that moves you to want to be that kind of person, the best you you can be all the time, and gives you some ability to do that in an an ever-increasing way that you could never do on your own. But to do that, I had to come into the world for you and live like you, and then I had to take and I had to exhaust the curse of the law on myself. So Jesus lived this perfect life, then suffered under two kangaroo courts. He was a martyr, the purest martyr who's ever lived, and then he, and then he was humiliated on the cross, and he became a curse in our place. And all the, 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 the curse of the law, all the wrath of God was poured out on him, poured out and exhausted on him for those who would believe in him. And so then the Jews realized, because if you read, like there, there are ancient and modern dialogues between rabbis and Christians and Christian leaders that you can read that go back to a man named Justin Martyr, and I think it was the second century, where he, he dialogued with a, a, a Jewish rabbi. And the Jewish rabbi said, I agree with you that the, the Messiah had to suffer. But did he have to suffer the curse of the law for us? We, we believe he's going to suffer in some other way, not in the curse of the law. God couldn't have cursed the Messiah. And see, that was the sticking point. That was they go, ah, I just can't buy that. But is there any hope to be free from the curse of the law if you don't keep every aspect of the law, if that isn't the only hope? So if we're under the curse of the law appropriately because we fail to do what we should be doing. I mean, a lot of people like to talk about love today. The commandments of God, Jesus said himself, are about love God and love your neighbor. And so when I have people ask me about, it's really weird, those rules about not eating shellfish in the Old Testament, <laughs> right? I just go, listen, this is, this is, it would take a little while to explain to you what that's about. But suffice it to say, the whole Old Testament was about God trying to give people clear instructions on how to love one another appropriately and how to love him. That's what it boils down to when you read the law. The law is is full of this heartfelt love, love for God, love for your neighbor. And so when we fail to be loving people, which we all agree love is what we're shooting for, then God says, then you're under my judgment. It doesn't sound... That radical, when you think of it that way, we should be reprimanded. If God is good, he is not going to excuse a lack of love from anybody. And so Jesus took our place, and he died. And so what this passage says, again, going back to it, it says, uh, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And that word justified, Paul, through this book, has has used that word to help people come to terms with the fact that God will declare you righteous if you put your faith in Jesus. He doesn't just declare you forgiven. He declares you righteous, which none of us are. Righteous is different than innocent. Righteous means God gives us something beyond what we could ever ever accomplished as a gift just by believing in our heart and confessing with our mouth because when Jesus was raised from the dead God was saying that is the sign of my approval on him and what he did to anybody who wants to believe in him the resurrection is what makes Jesus's suffering stand out because he wasn't just another sort of sad historical figure who failed and is you know, swept under the carpet of history. When he was risen, when he rose from the dead, God was saying, this is my work 
And the work I did there will be released in your life if you'll believe in him. You can't do anything to earn it. You can only believe in your heart, confess it with your mouth, that you need it, that you need a Savior. And the only way he can be your Savior is if he's Lord. Those two are connected. And when you hear Christianity that tells you that you can, Jesus can be your Savior and then your Lord, how can, he, how can he be your Savior if he's not your Lord? It's not a complicated idea. And that's the implication we want to look at next. And the, the radical commitment, the cost of this, Jesus paid the cost, but there are implications if you say Jesus is Lord. When, when you become a follower of Jesus, and this is one of the phrases some guys who discipled me early on in my Christian life said, they said, you become a love slave of Jesus. Now, I know love slave has some weird connotations today. So I just want you to find a way to not think of this as some weird double entendre. We're talking about the title that all the apostles of Jesus took on themselves when they wrote the letters to the churches. They said, we are the duolos, that's the Greek word, of Christ. And the duolos was the title for the lowliest household slave, the slave at the bottom of the rung. Now, these were the men and women that God sent out with his unique authority to proclaim the gospel, to plant churches, to challenge kings, to raise the dead. I mean, these were people going out, like it says in Hebrews, these were people the world was not worthy of. But they didn't wear that, like, call ahead and, and, and make sure my table is ready kind of attitude at restaurants, right? They called themselves the duolos of Christ because Christ was a servant. And so when he was raised, he was raised to the right hand of God. He became the lowest servant and did what nobody else will do. And God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand forever. And his name is above every name. And so he gives us his authority to go. And those guys could have taken that. They could have polished that. They could have made themselves just look so important. But they didn't. They took self-consciously the, the title of the lowest slave they could find, and they put that at the beginning of every one of their letters, which rang with their authority. They said, you can trust us. And this is something you should think about. I wish this one statement I'm going to make right now could be sent around our country. The leaders you trust should be servants. If the, lead, if the people who are leading churches are not servants, you shouldn't follow them. If they're just fleecing everybody and asking for money for personal jets, I'm not sure that would have sat well with the apostles who said, we are the servants of the servant. Now, I don't want to, I want to be careful here. I don't want to George judge the Lord's servants, but I want to impress on you something. Again, if I could only give you one message that would help you hold on to things for the rest of your life that would probably steer you in the best direction possible, it would be tinged heavily with this Jesus is Lord idea. And then if the leaders, now think about this, if the leaders in the early church advertised themselves constantly as servants, what do you think that was trying to communicate to people in the church? And in the early church, they had followers of Jesus from all the classes of society. So there were well-to-do people who society had conferred or, or somehow they had gotten great influence and power and authority and money. And their teachers were calling themselves servants. Now, let me tell you something. Kings and people have figured this out. And they often added to their many titles, servant of the people, right? Civil servants. You know, we hear all the time how the people we elect in Washington are, our servants are just feathering their nests. They, they go into Washington as average people like us, and they come out after 20 years, and they're and they worth $300 million. And you look at that and go, wow, that's a good gig. You know, 
There's not very, there's only about 535 jobs like that. No wonder people spend so much money to do that. And you'll see my punchline here in a second. The church whose, whose Lord was a servant, its first wave of leaders called themselves the Duolos. They couldn't find a lower servant than that. They said, we are Jesus's love slaves. We bound ourselves to them. And in the Old Testament law, if you were a, a, an indentured servant, you, could, you, could serve, you only had to serve for a certain number of time, a certain amount of time, and then you were free. And there was all kinds of provision in the law for that. But if you loved your master and you wanted to continue serving him, there was a little ceremony where you would go and they would pierce your ear lobe with an awl. You know, an awl, well, an awl is like a, a screwdriver, for want of a better phrase. And they would, that was kind of how they... They marked you, and then they would put a ring or something in your ear that was a symbol that you were willingly the servant of your master. Out of affection, it wasn't forced. These early church leaders said, that's what we are to Jesus. He has won our hearts. His goodness, his affection, his worth has won our hearts. And so we give up everything for him. We willingly let go of everything. We forsake all rights we have for his sake and for the sake of those for whom he loves. See, that was always the flip side of it. You know, we look at the cross. There's always that. If we love God, it's going to show in how we treat the people he loves, right? That's part of the lordship. So they were love slaves. and they, they were, John Stott said there, he, he gave six dimensions of the lordship of Christ. I'm just going to touch three of them. First is the intellectual dimension of our lives. Most of us tend to think, you know, my mind is mine. My opinions are mine. But Jesus came along and said, after, like, say, for example, all through Jesus' teaching were peppered these statements, where at the end of the, what arguably is the greatest message in the history of the church, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this. He said there were two people. One heard my words and listen to them and put them into action in their life and obey them, they're like a person who built their house on a rock. And when the storms and the wind and the rain came, the house stood. Then there was another person who heard my words and didn't obey them, just dismissed them and held on to their own opinions. They are like a person who built their house on the sand. And when the storms and the rain and the wind come, which you notice he says they come against both houses, this house collapses. Jesus was saying that if you're his love slave, what he teaches is going to shape your opinions. And if your opinions contradict with him, then you are going to forsake your opinions and embrace his. Now, we Americans, it's like, you know, it's like we, we bristle at that. I have rights. Uh, but isn't that the key word we're talking about? The Lord that we follow, he gave up all his rights. And the leaders that taught us the word gave up their rights. And the best way for the world to operate is if everybody's love slaves and we're all serving and giving to each other out of love for him who gave his life for us. But that's not the way it is. And, the, you know, not that the church always gets it right with Jesus' teaching, but do you understand if I stand up here and I say something, it's your responsibility to evaluate whether it lines up with what Jesus says. Your responsibility. It's mine too, but it's yours. But if you don't obey it, you're going to be held responsible. And there's nothing that's more dismissed today, I think, than the church's teaching. Because the church teaches imperfectly about certain things, doesn't mean that all of his teachings are supposed to be dismissed. Just out of hand. We can do what we want. Well, I, you can't do that, but Jesus warns you, you're building your house on sand, and it will collapse. And, and wind, rain, storms were also symbols of divine activity all through the Bible. So God himself will come and test your opinions that you think so much of. And I stand here before you at times trembling that I'm saying things that I'm saying in the name of the Lord because I don't want to get them wrong and I know you're going to be held account 
And I don't want to trick you out of you know, loyalty to me to, to buy into something that you shouldn't. But I also want to stand up here like you should be able to stand up and stand in conversations with your friends. And when you're talking about Jesus and his will, which is good for everybody, you can stand with authority. I'm going to give you an example in a minute of people that have done this and the difference it makes. Intellectually, we have to decide, are we going to embrace Jesus' opinions or our own or whoever's? Then morally, the whole moral dimension of our lives, it's another thing that, that cultures throughout history have all wrestled with, is we all have moral values, and, and every culture has good and bad values. Don't let anybody tell you that. Any different. It's true. And most cultures, though, tend to think we have more good values than bad values, which is self-deception. Because history has proven out how many bad values every culture has. The only bad values that you, the only values that you can ever look to that aren't bad are those that come from Jesus. And I'll give you an example. Just in 2 Corinthians, Paul, in kind of debating uh, sexual standards and sexual morality with the Corinthians, who actually the Corinthians, the Corinthian, the city of Corinth was a, was a, uh, a port, uh, a seaport, and it was a pretty wild place. A lot of sailors going through there, a lot of, you know, a lot of that kind of activity going on. And the church grew up in this, in this environment that said that pretty much sexually anything goes. And when the gospel came to them, they began to find that the gospel was, was meddling into you know, what they defined as appropriate sexual morality. And so at, at one point, Paul, not getting into, into anything particular, he says, flee from pornea, sexual immorality, which meant all sex outside of God's will. He said, flee from it. Well, that's not most people's first instinct about sexual activities, right? We don't flee from those things. We run towards them. But Paul's saying, and, and which, by the way, the first command in the Bible is about sex, and it's a positive command. The first command in the Bible is be fruitful and multiply. God's not against sex, but he has a will for it. And it's, there's, there's a, it's a challenging dimension of our lives, to say the least, right? Here's what Paul says. Now, I want you to notice when he articulates his boundary, what he tries to persuade them with is not about rules and black and white, and I'm telling you this. And I'm the boss and the teacher, and you should listen to me. I want you to just listen carefully and see what it is that he's using to persuade them. He says, all other sins someone commits are outside their own body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. There's that Jesus is Lord. He's bought your freedom from slavery to immorality. Wrestle with what that means, but seek to honor God with your body. Seek to honor him with how you handle your sexual life. And anyway, the political dimension. You know that the Bible says that God... Made Jesus Lord. He's the Lord over all the nations. He's the Lord over America. And one of the things that America needs is a church that grasps its calling to be love slaves for Jesus and to speak into the political environment in, into which we live. And it's rare for people to do it from Jesus' point of view. But when they do it, remember the, the, the four aspects of making a statement is there's a principle that you're standing for. It's going to cost you something to stand for it. It most likely will move other people, and, and it's possible that there will be a benefit for you. And I'm going to get to that punchline in a second. But civil disobedience is a part of our calling because we live in a world that God, where God has installed a political structure 
that he's behind up to a point. Because it's, it's a fallen, broken structure like everything else that's it's mixed. And so at times, that structure is going to be unjust. And if we love Jesus, we will challenge that structure. And years ago, Steve Hamrick, who was giving announcements up here, he gave me this letter. I don't know if you ever remember it, but I've made other copies since then. Uh, I'm going to give you an example with, and, and try to be concise here. If you've never read the letter from Birmingham Jail, anybody know what this is? It's a letter by Dr. Martin Luther King when he was in jail. I mean, it, it was a letter to address the concerns of the clergyman in Birmingham, Alabama, because of all the trouble, quote-unquote, that, that Dr. King was stirring up. And this is, the, this is one of the most amazing letters of Bible-based political action that you will ever read that is full of the, this humility and love and brokenheartedness. But this courage and this authority that, I mean, it's just like, it's not Scripture. But it shows you that God raises up leaders and generations to speak with His authority and Martin Luther King was not a perfect man. And whatever you've heard about him and some of his moral failings are probably true. But let me tell you something. The prophets of the Bible were not Jesus. They were not perfect. They were mortal men and women like us. But this is an amazing thing. I can't read this without weeping. It's so powerful what it says. And the humility with which he speaks. And let me read a couple of paragraphs. There was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Wherever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. Those are terms from the book of Acts, which is what Martin Luther King and all the civil rights protesters were accused of. But Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven called to obey God rather than men. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought to an end such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests, among other things. Things are different now. This is written in April 1963. I was eight years old when this was written. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often vocal sanctions of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. 21st century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. So he goes on. I won't read more. It was incredibly costly what he did. But they humbled themselves and they acted as servants with the authority of Jesus and they challenged the, the status quo of their time. And they were, a, they were you know the story of how they were uh, intimidated and, and from, from the mildest way to the most extreme ways. Killed and, and beaten and, and persecuted and, and just like Christians are uh, in societies today where they're hated just merely because they're Christians. And to be a love slave of Jesus offers you something. And we're going to close with this. Uh, Adam, why don't you come up? To be a love slave of Jesus is to be offered, this is the personal benefit of saying Jesus is Lord. We're we're rescued. We have a, 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 our Lord is the only one qualified to rescue us. And he rescues us from certain pressures that we can face day in and day out that we're not supposed to have on our shoulders. 
Because when someone, one of the benefits of being a slave in that time was all the worry about your upkeep and protection was on someone else's shoulders. Your job was just to do their will and to live that out. And when you read in the New Testament exhortations to prayer, they weren't exhortations to just pray words like you may hear them that way, but like Paul says, uh, gotta find the he said, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now he wrote that to the Philippians, which was the colony of Rome, where a lot of soldiers retired. It was a place where they understood Caesar is Lord. Caesar will care for us. Caesar and his rule will protect us. But Paul was writing to people who recognized Caesar had a place, but Jesus was Lord. And that will create tension for you in your life at some point. But what it does for you in the most profound way is when you become a love slave of Jesus... And you begin to fret and worry about the things that do concern all of us. You have someone to give that burden to who is Lord. And he's qualified to be the one that provides for you and protects you and cares for you. And there's a peace that goes with that. But it's a peace that doesn't come easily. Because what happens is we want the peace without surrendering do Jesus. And you can't, you can't have it one without the other. You want peace from God. You don't want to worry. You're going to worry if you're in control. You're going to worry if you've got the wheel. You're going to worry if all your, all your chips are, are in your company, or in your career, and your academic status. And anything that you can lose... Any human institution, the church, anybody, you, if you put too much weight on that, there's a time when the wind, the storms, and the rain will come, and it will test it. And all it will do is expose where your trust is. And then you get a chance to go, I'm going to give this to you. And sometimes it takes a while to let go of it. It takes a while in prayer to really let go of it. It isn't just a simple transaction. Oh, Lord, I'm worrying about this. Here, you, you know, you worry about it. I'm going to move on. <laughs> Anybody ever done that and it didn't work? It doesn't work that way. It's about yielding everything, everything. And maybe you thought you did that. But when the storms and the wind and the wave come and start testing things, you find out what you've yielded and what you haven't. It's that simple. So, you know, uh, we, one of the songs we sang, this is how we like to close the service one of the songs we sang uh, was an invitation because when people stand up and say, Jesus is Lord, I give everything to him, and I'm going to live like it, it sends a message to people around them. And it says there's a whole other way to live. There's a better way. It's not an easy way. It's a better way, though. Because the one that we trust lived that way. He trusted his Father in heaven the way he's asking us to trust him. And the Father vindicated him when everybody else had abandoned him. And the Father vindicated him and said, Whoever puts their trust in my son, I will vindicate you. I will stand for you. And when Martin Luther King stood in the places he stood and the people he inspired did that, Jesus vindicated them. He vindicated them. He stood for them because they were standing for him. They weren't just standing for other blacks. They were standing for everybody that was treated poorly by whoever was in majority. And that happens everywhere. People just, we just, we're just, we love injustice. We love power. And we have to repent of it. The one who had all power gave it all up for a better world. And so if you want to follow him, maybe the Lord's knocking on your heart today and saying, that worry that you wrestle with that just plagues you. That's shining a light on part of your heart that just isn't yielded to me yet. Maybe there's some wounds there and some disappointments where people have let you down, but Jesus wants 
to transform that. He wants to put in your heart this sense of there's someone who's big who's going to be on your side and be with you. And where those memories of pain, uh, uh, you know, get evoked by difficulties in life, Jesus wants to come into that, but you have to open up that part of your life and recognize that this is the idiot light of your heart going off and saying that worry is something I want to calm. I want to give you peace. I've just seen people do this in the 30 plus years I've been pastoring and I, it's, it never ceases to amaze me how the burden lives, lifts off when we take Jesus' yoke, when we take his yoke and say, Lord, I'm yours. I want to be your love slave. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But the burden of caring for yourself and making sure your world stays in order and trying to think ahead 20 steps and all of that, it's, it's a cruel, cruel burden. And I don't mean you don't have to plan or think. I just mean it's a whole different exercise when Jesus' yoke is on your shoulders. So, why don't you stand with me? We're just going to sing this song through, and we're going to close. We're, we're finished the service, so you guys can leave whenever you need to. But as you sing this song, if you have had the Lord just tapping you on the shoulder, proverbially, this morning, and you understand that little idiot light that's going off, what it's connected to, then I want to encourage you to give that to Him. It could be... You know, your opinions and views. It could be some morality. It could be some political issue. But you just, I don't want to deal with that, John. I don't want to get involved in helping immigrants or, or you know, people who are trapped in the sex trafficking trade or, or anything like that. But Jesus does. And maybe he's, he wants you to stand with those people like he stood with you. And, and it's going to cost you something. But there's a reward that comes with it. And the way I want you to respond, just like we did on Easter, this is between you and the Lord. There's no, no one's keeping count, no one's worrying. But if you want to give the Lord these burdens, as you're singing this song, as this, this, this song comes on with the words, you know, it's the, uh, the Crowder song, um, Come As You Are. Come As You Are. As the words come up there and they prompt your heart, and, you want to, and, and you're responding to the Lord, just lift your hands up to Him and say, Lord, take that. I give it to you. I mean, that's the universal sign of surrender. You know, around the world. You lift your hands up. It's like here. It's, a, it's this, I'm not going to defend myself. I'm not going to protect myself. I'm letting go. And, but just do it as response to Jesus here today. And you may have to go back another time because it's a hard thing to let go of certain things. But there's going to be divine transactions here today where the Lord's speaking to you. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll go forward. Lord, uh, thank you that uh, we made this confession that Jesus is Lord. And we believe you've been raised from the dead after you died for our sins. And we want to be your love slaves. We want to be those who, like the apostles, want to be your servants, like you were a servant to us. Just search our hearts right now, Holy Spirit, and show us where we're holding on to our rights and where we're standing against your gentle pressure on our hearts, your loving, gentle pressure. We want to respond and, and yield that to you today. For Jesus' sake and in his name. Jesus says, you have always helped the weak. You've always helped those. Even you help those that are stubborn. You've helped those that are unrighteous and, and wicked and cruel to become like you.